Hey, gang, it's the holidays. And so I want to take a second to let you know how important it is to support your local public radio station. You know, uh, public radio is one of the most incredible journalism networks in the country. All the reporters where you live are covering the important stuff that's happening where you live, whether it's for your local audience or for everyone else in the country. In other words, when you support your local public radio station, you are making journalism happen. You are informing yourself, you're informing the people in your community, and you're informing people around the country about what's going on where you live. You can keep the facts coming. Support independent journalism by donating to your station. Just go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And that way they'll know we sent you. It's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And then tell the world why you're supporting your local public radio station with the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know J.K. Simmons, right? He has an Academy Award for Whiplash. He's in a lot of insurance advertisements. I mean, he puts in the work. He has 183 credits on his IMDb page right now, and he's not slowing down. If you want to see his breakthrough role, you have to go back 20 years, 1997. He played Vernon Schillinger in Oz, the groundbreaking HBO prison drama. His character was a neo-Nazi. He killed guys, raped people. TV Guide called him one of the nastiest villains of all time. And the thing about playing a super nasty neo-Nazi prison overlord on television is it's kind of hard not to take it home with you. You know, to show up at work and and play the head of the Aryan Brotherhood in a maximum security prison, uh, you know, w- was a real challenge, and and uh, and it was difficult to shake that off at the end of the day, um, especially since I often saved time by not removing the swastika tattoos, so that I didn't have to put them on again the next day. But it, it was difficult, and my wife at the time was doing Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, so we had some slightly different vibes going on. It's certainly a good reminder to wear long sleeves at night. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with J.K. Simmons more about Oz and about happier stuff, too, like his time singing in a smash hit Broadway revival of Guys and Dolls. It was a ridiculous hit. I remember the uh, it was set a box office record the day after we opened, and the review was on the front page of the New York Times. Not the front page of the arts section, the front page of the New York Times. Then Solomon Giorgio. He's a brilliant stand-up comedian. He's got a new album out. It is fantastic. And let's be frank, Solomon is a very handsome man. Look, it took a long time uh, to make this comfortable and easy to look at. Uh, (laughs) And it's, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not going to kid myself. I'm not not the worst thing to look at. Then I'll tell you about one of the most powerful and plain-spoken songs about poverty you'll ever hear. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. J.K. Simmons used to be the kind of guy you'd call on when you need a character actor who could really commit to the part, even if it's just for a scene or two. 
maybe it's a psychiatrist on Law and Order in a turtleneck and a sport coat, maybe covered in tattoos to play a white power jail gang leader, or getting jacked up in the gym to play Commissioner Gordon in the Justice League. But now he's kind of coming into his own. In 2014, he starred alongside Miles Teller in the critically acclaimed drama Whiplash. It got him an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He's also the star of the new film The Bachelors. It's out now. In it, Simmons plays a math teacher named Bill Pallet. He's just lost his wife. He's trying to move past it. And one day Bill wakes up and he decides it's time for a big change. So he and his son Wes move out to California. Bill takes a job at a private school. The transition's tough, and it only makes Bill more depressed. Here's a little bit of the movie. J.K.'s character is trying to plant a garden in his front yard, but so far all he has done is dig a giant hole, a literal giant hole. And in this scene, he's just kind of staring blankly into it when his son approaches him. Just doing some prep work. There's too much shade in the back, so plant the garden here. Put in some... Lettuce, beans. You okay, Dad? Yeah. I don't know. I, maybe a little out of it, I guess. Should probably tell the doc these happy pills are more like spacey pills. What a drag your old man is, huh? Even on drugs, I'm no fun. I, I really don't need you to be Mr. Smiley Face all the time. It'd be nice to get a break from Mr. Droopy, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> J.K. Simmons, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's Mr. Droopy in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sit before me uh, clean-shaven. Uh, in the film, you have... Uh, you know, if you were a hockey player, it would be a playoff beard, but I guess it's a depressed dad beard. You know, I think uh, uh, people who can grow facial hair in our audience probably identify with this, but it really feels like you're doing something. Like, it's one of the biggest things you can just change about yourself. I'm doing a film right now with uh, Jason Reitman called uh, The Front Runner and uh, uh, about the Gary Hart campaign. And I'm playing... You know, we're all playing actual people. The guy that I'm playing looks absolutely nothing like me. But Jason is one of those directors who's very reticent to put a wig on me, you know, because it's like, oh, there's J.K. Simmons with a wig on. You know? Right. And I and I understand that point, although, you know, as an actor, you always want to, you know, let's work a different look. And and, uh, and I think, yeah, I think the facial hair is a is a a very viable way for me to do that without it being sort of uh, more distracting than helpful. Well, I mean, I think probably your first major national screen role, the one that established you as an actor was as a skinhead on Oz. And like that's as much physical manipulation of your body as you can pretty much do short of putting on 75 pounds or something. Right, which I've also done um, and don't advise. Um but yeah, and and actually on Oz, and I don't know how obvious or, or known this is at all. I actually bleached the little bit of hair that I did have, which um, if people are really super bored, you can go through and and see uh, which episode um, the the bleach job turned my hair a little too orange one time. 
<laughs> I can't claim to be that level of Oz obsessive or even J.K. Simmons obsessive with all apologies. I, I honestly don't think anyone should be. I am really struck by the fact that your uh, screen acting career particularly uh, started when you were 100% a grown man, you know, yeah. 20 years into your career roughly. Yeah. Um, when you were a teenager or when you were in college, did you think that you wanted to become an actor? Uh, certainly not when I was a teenager. I thought I wanted to play center field for the Detroit Tigers. As a teenager? Did it seem uh, realistic at the time? Uh, I feel like I gave up and like adjusted it to maybe I could be an umpire by the time <laughs> I was like 9 or 10. Well, as an early teenager. Right. Um, and then I did sort of the classic uh, after my sophomore year of high school or during my sophomore year of high school. I sort of turned on, tuned in and dropped out in 1970. And... Uh, and at the time, there were the hippies, there were the brainiac nerds, there were the jocks, and there were the hood boots. And that was basically the... The hood boots? The, the hood boots. What's a hood boot? The, the, the hoods, the tough yeah. guys. Um, those, were, those were the four <laughs> demographics in, in our little high school, or our gigantic high school in, in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio. How much did you drop out? Um, uh, a fairly typical, um, I didn't actually drop out, although I did get out of high school a year early, but that was because I was such a genius and, Congratulations. Uh, yes. Um, and, uh, and then ended up going to three different colleges and changing my major twice and transferring twice and dropping out once. So I, I still graduated after the rest of my class did from college with my degree in music, which I don't use. Well, I mean, it was a degree that was really essential to your career becoming what it was because you you were a singer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started out, did, well, studying music and wanting to, deciding if I wanted to be you know, Robert Merrill or Leonard Bernstein, to give two other ancient references. Um, and uh, yeah, and then stumbled into musical theater at the Big Fork Summer Playhouse in Big Fork, Montana, and... Um, or actually, previously that spring with the Missoula Children's Theater, fell in love with that, and there were also lots of attractive chicks in musical theater, just as there were in the uh, the hippie class of '72 and three at Worthington High School. Um, and uh, yes, obviously, one thing has led to another to the point where we're sitting in a studio and you're interested in talking to me. I met my wife in theater school, and it's really difficult to overstate the appeal of being a straight dude in musical theater. Oh. It doesn't really matter how you feel about the musical theater part, as long as you're not dead set opposed to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did you decide to leave regional musical theater? It's a nice job if you can get it. It is. doesn't pay exceptionally well, but it's fun. Very fun. And it's, I'm sure it was nice to live in Montana. Montana's beautiful. Indeed. It it was such a gradual thing. I mean, I honestly, when I fell in love with doing theater and musical theater in particular uh, in Montana, it never occurred to me that I would even move to L.A. or New York uh, or do Broadway and, and certainly not, you know, be a, a camera actor. But I, I moved out to Seattle and, and you know, had a variety of uh, odd jobs as I as I auditioned for theater and um, one of the first jobs I got in theater was in a musical, but 
not utilizing my musical, what I considered my musical theater chops. It was playing the Mute King in Once Upon a Mattress, uh, a role created by Jack Guilford. Um, and uh, and that was sort of the beginning of me making a, a, a very fortunate transition to uh, uh, the Seattle theater community, seeing me in, in a variety of different ways so that I wasn't sort of typecast as the guy that's going to come out and sing all the you know big songs and and be the musical leading man um in the land of oz which we were referring to earlier uh tom fontana who is uh, one of god's great people um who's the creator of the show the creator of the show um and papa tom was what we called him he uh, uh as many people will know he had a lot of us do a lot of horrible awful things on that show um and it was just sort of expected that, you know, if you were going to be on this show, you were going to be the kind of actor who was willing to go anywhere the boss said he wanted you to go, killing, raping, pillaging. I mean, it would be difficult to overstate the brutality of that show. Oh, it was hardcore. And and we're celebrating our 20th year, actually, this year of, of airing and um, and getting, I hope, a little attention as, as for, for Tom in particular as being the groundbreaking show that it was. It was the first drama on pay cable and uh, and knocked down a lot of doors and walls uh, for shows that followed. But Tom never, uh, you know, uh, he never shied away from anything, obviously, and, and didn't, uh, uh, didn't expect his actors to. So when I got a message on my old-fashioned answering machine in 1999 or whatever it was um, from Tom... In the in the interim between seasons, saying J.K., I I had an idea for your character, but I uh, before I go forward with it, I wanted to talk to you and you know see if it was okay with you. And I thought, wow, this this man has had me kill people, rape people, tattoo people. He's had somebody poop on my face. He's had <laughs> me. What? Can he possibly have planned that that he suddenly now wants my approval? And so I called him with that trepidation in mind. And hey, Tom, hey, it's J.K. Hey, J.K., how are you? So listen, um, I was wondering if you would be willing to sing on the show. And I breathed a major sigh of relief and said, yes, yes, I would be very happy to sing on the show, Tom. We actually have some audio of you singing this is from Guys and Dolls in 1992, a production that really, I think, changed the course of your career. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was a ridiculous hit. I remember the uh, it was set a box office record the day after we opened, and the review was on the front page of the New York Times. Not the front page of the arts section, the front page of the New York Times. Crazy. Uh, this is J.K. Simmons, my guest on the show. He played Benny South Street. In the 1992 Guys and Dolls, he's singing the title track uh, as it's a duet with Nicely Nicely Johnson, who's played by Walter Bobby. When you see a Joe saving half of his dough, you can bet there'll be mink in it for some doll. When a bum buys wine like a bum can't afford, it's a cinch that the bum is under the thumb of some little broad. When you meet a mug lately out of the jug, and he's still lifting platinum folly raw. Call it hell, call it heaven, it's probable 12 to 7, but the guy's only doing a 
just a, a, a grin that I can't wipe off my face. That was such a brilliant. That was that was me first and Walter second, and then Walter on the higher harmony. Um, it was always everybody else on the higher harmony in whatever <laughs> I sang ever anywhere. Um, oh my God, that was that was such a, a blessing and a joyful experience. That that whole thing from being cast and actually having the nerve to pass on being cast in in smaller roles a couple of times. To my surprise, I was called in again to audition, and and Jerry Zax is kind of standing there with his hands on his hips, looking at me like, dude. What is your deal? And we we had a very frank conversation, and he was like, you know, um, concerned that he was that he was, you know, dealing with an actor who just whose ego was just out of control. And uh, and I said, look, I it, it's not about ego. It's it's about I just want to be a significant part of this. And and I said, I do know how to pass the ball. And about six months into it, just when you're kind of reaching that point where you go, yes, this is still great. It's getting to feel a little bit like punching the clock and doing the same thing all the time. I was reading this great interview with Andre 3000, Andre Benjamin from Outcast in uh, GQ the other day. And one of the things that he said is he said, you know, somebody told him that you stay the emotional age that you were when you get famous. And he said, you know, his life struggle is that when he was 18 or 19, he signed a record contract. He hasn't paid a bill since then yeah. and just trying to figure out how to be an adult human being in his 40s now. And the fact that, you know, your career's build has been so consistent and so uh, uh, gradual gradual over <laughs> yeah. over decades, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. over 40 years. No, and so fortunate for, for me and my loved ones because really when I was 28 and finally moved to New York, I was kind of 28 going on 19 in a lot of ways emotionally and I read that you got yourself put in jail a couple of times. Yeah, a couple. A couple, three, four times. <laughs> Never for too long, but yeah, just for being a knucklehead. Like hitting someone in a bar or something? No, the only person I ever hit was one of New York's finest. <laughs> um, but that was just a misunderstanding. Um, uh, you were intended to hit a criminal? Or? No, it was, uh, I mean, it's a long, really boring story, but... Uh, I, he was not in uniform. It was a street altercation that that escalated, and I was an idiot, um, and uh, and was very very fortunate uh, that I only spent a few hours in a in a holding tank in in that particular situation. I think the first time you really made an impression in my mind is in the movies Spider Man, in which you played J. John and Jameson. I guess we should just start by listening to you as J. Jonah Jameson, the, the newspaper publisher in Spider-Man. It's just one of the more delightful performances that, that I've seen on film. It's just a, a joy to watch. You you played this out of a thousand different things thereafter, like you were in uh, like cartoons and video games on The Simpsons one time. Right, right. Like you were the voice of J. Jonah Jameson for a long time. So this is um, this is J. Jonah Jameson uh, who, who has realized that uh, Spider Man is the man who sells newspapers, but it's hard to get pictures of him. Oh, it's so hard to get pictures of Spider Man. <laughs> Barely get a glimpse of him. Oh, what is he shy? We can get a picture of Julia Roberts in a thong. We can certainly get a picture of this weirdo. Put an ad on the front page. Cash money for a picture of Spider-Man. He doesn't want to be famous. And I'll make him infamous. 
with the cigar inserted before that final line, <laughs> as I recall. Uh, oh my! I mean, uh, talk about a, a joy and a, and a and a brilliant opportunity at just the right time. I had worked uh, on the two previous Sam Raimi movies, and when we were doing the first one, being for Love of the Game, in which I got to play the manager of my hometown Detroit Tigers, which you was grew yourself a nice, crazy, nice Jim Leland mustache. Exactly right. Yes. Um, and then and then a movie called The Gift, in which I had a little Jackie Gleason mustache. Those were, those were both homage mustaches. Um, <laughs> and it was during the filming of The Gift uh, that, that word sort of got out that Sam was going to be doing the Spider-Man movies. And um, so I didn't say anything. And then, you know, months later, I uh, uh, Sam, you know, through channels, uh, made it clear that he wanted me to play uh, J. Jonah Jameson, but that I would have to audition for the producers. I mean, I think one of the great things about those uh, Spider-Man movies is that Spider-Man is a character, you know, the thing that drives it is the same as the thing that drives a lot of those 60s Marvel comic books, which is, you know, the superhero is a metaphor for dealing with adolescence, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so Spider-Man himself, you know, he's a relatively grounded superhero because he is constantly at war with his own body, essentially, but also his emotions, you know, in the way that a, uh, in the way that a teenager is. Yeah. Um, and that was the case in those movies. But they really also capture the uh, the goofiness of comic books. Well, and that that was absolutely my intent going in. Once I did a little research, it seemed to me that, you know, obviously we're setting this in, in the current day, whatever year that film was made, 2000-ish, um, but that more than any other character, J. Jonah Jameson was, you know, a bit of a throwback even to kind of a Preston Sturgis kind of a vibe. And 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 the character that needed to be most sort of directly ripped off the pages of the comics. We'll continue my conversation with J.K. Simmons after a quick break. Stay with us. Plus, later on, the brilliant comedian Solomon Giorgio. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines for the holiday season. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows, all with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with J.K. Simmons. He's an Oscar-winning actor. He starred in Whiplash, Justice League, and the new film The Bachelors, which is out now. I am uh, not a collectibles guy, but my friend Jordan told me not that long ago about something that, that I have really held close to my heart ever since, which is... There was an action figure from the Spider-Man movies of J. Jonah Jameson. Desk-pounding action. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Did it was that the punchline? Did I jump in there? <laughs> I'm glad it's it's you're you're the you're the guest here. You get to deliver the punchline. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. I thought you were going to tell a whole a whole different story because there, there's a story I've told not often, but once or twice. Where yes, I, I, I there there is a J. Jonah Jameson action figure, and and his action is 
pounding on his desk and the little, little items on the desk kind of jump up and down. I watched an entire YouTube review of it this morning. I was like, I was just thinking about, oh, what about that desk pounding action? I typed it into, I typed it into an internet search engine and brought up a YouTube video. And I was watching the little flick the switch and the, you got to sit him down in the chair and right. then lock him in. And then you flick the switch and he, and the stuff is connected with little elastics or something on the desk. And, oh, it, and it shakes around. It's quite the impressive. It's for real. And then don't think we didn't buy a couple dozen of them. I was also thinking of J. Jonah Jameson when I was watching a few scenes from Whiplash this morning. Uh, you know, you won a well-deserved Oscar for Whiplash. Um, but the only way to sell it in that world is to have a, an emotional commitment to it. And, you know, as I watched Whiplash, the things that happen are so big. I mean, when you throw a chair at someone, when you're yelling at them, it's a really big thing. You know, this is only 10 degrees off angle from what he was doing yelling, I want pictures of Spider-Man, you know. But uh, you are able to manipulate that tone and, and deepen that emotional connection to the material. Anything that I do, I hope, uh, you know, has to ultimately come from a place of being grounded in reality, even something as silly as... J. Jonah Jameson. Let's hear my guest J.K. Simmons in Whiplash from 2014. Um, your character was named Fletcher. He was a, a jazz big band instructor and a very exacting and demanding one. Um, the film is kind of a, a meditation on to what extent the ends justify the means in creating art. And um, Miles Teller is uh, the star of the film, and he's a young drummer, and you're, you're losing it with him. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, five. damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Oh, no. Count again. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference. And it gets worse from there. <laughs> Are you aware of yourself kind of managing and modulating the tone of that performance? When yeah, and, and uh, the, those sort of modulations were not uh, things that I really sort of mapped out ahead of time or that, or that Damien mapped out ahead of time, Damien Chazelle, the genius writer-director. Um, you know, Miles and I uh, had a great time on that movie just, uh, you know, being... Uh, he may not have enjoyed <laughs> that slapping scene so much. Are you able to wear the emotions of your characters lightly? I mean, The Bachelors, your new movie is a movie about depression. You know, you play a character who is actively struggling with depression through almost the entire course of the film. Do you have the ability to wipe your feet at the door and wipe your feet on the way out? I do now. Um, 
uh, it was uh, it was an ability, uh, a, a skill that I I learned of necessity. <laughs> I think over the years, uh, uh, Oz, again, going back to that is a, is a good example of I think it was difficult for a lot of us, uh, you know, to show up at work and, and play the head of the Aryan Brotherhood in a maximum security prison, uh, you know, w- was a real challenge. And, and, uh, and it was difficult to shake that off at the end of the day, um, especially since I often save time by not removing the swastika tattoos so that I didn't have to put them on again the next day. Um, I, I wore a lot of long sleeves. Um, why is that guy wearing long sleeves in August in Manhattan? Um, but it, it was difficult. And my wife at the time was doing Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. So we had some slightly different vibes going on. And, and, uh, and you know, I mean, I would... tell as old as time, huh? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, you know, I would crawl into bed with her and, and, and it, it was just... I was, I was not a fun guy to be around, you know? And I thought, this is... You know, this show might be going for a while. I need, I need to be able to, you know, put this on when I get to work and take it off when I take off the wardrobe. Now, I know you've had some really great merchandise over your career, specifically uh, J. Jonas Jameson with Real Desk Pounding Action. Can I just pitch, if you ever want to do some J.K. Simmons merchandise specifically, uh, how about one of those things where you uh, draw mustaches and beards with magnet shavings? Uh, Yes, yes, and hair. We're going to get very rich. Thank you. I will give you 1% of the proceeds of that. Thank you very much. That's very generous of you. And thank you for being so generous with your time to come and be on Bullseye. It was really great to get here to talk to you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. J.K. Simmons, his new movie, The Bachelor, is available to rent and buy online now. Check it out there. If you're interested in owning the J. Jonah Jameson action figure with trademarked desk-pounding action... It can be bought on eBay for as little as $18, a small price to pay for hours of family-friendly entertainment. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Solomon Giorgio. He's a stand-up comedian from Seattle via Fresno, via St. Louis, via Sudan, and Ethiopia, where his parents were born. These days, he lives here in Los Angeles. He's appeared on Conan, on The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, Last Call with Carson Daly. He has a really unique presence on stage, sometimes vulnerable and sincere, talking about childhood trauma in the way that somebody like, I don't know, Maria Bamford or something might. But at the same time, there's also this kind of audaciousness to him. He'll strike a pose and talk about how perfect his thigh gap is. And I, I don't know what it is, but when he does that, you just believe him. I mean, the man can sell a joke. Earlier this year, he got his own Comedy Central special. He also released his debut record, Homo Negro Superior, one of our favorites this year. Here's a bit from the beginning. My name is Solomon Giorgio. That is my real name. Uh, It is my birth name. Uh, It is a very beautiful name for obviously a very beautiful man. (laughs) My last name, Giorgio, is Italian. I am Ethiopian. And some people have asked me, Solomon, how does an African get a European last name? Well, (laughs) it's a lot like a fairy tale. Um, Except in this fairy tale, there happens to be an Italian army occupation, uh, a brutal civil war, a few decades of famine, 
and no happy endings. So, <laughs> like all fairy tales. Um, however, uh, my first name, Solomon, is a very old biblical name. It was actually given to me by my uncle, Mufasa Rigatoni. So, you know. <laughs> Solomon, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the yeah, show. I'm happy to be here, Jesse. I, okay, so I watched you do, I listened to you do that joke on your album. Mm -hmm. I watched you do it on uh, the Conan O'Brien mm -hmm. show. And something that I noticed in both versions of it, but particularly on Conan, I think maybe to some extent the audience uh, at the at, at the album taping is there to see you. But in both cases, when you say that joke about it's like a fairy tale, you get a pretty good laugh on yeah. it's like a fairy tale, the setup to the joke. And you get an okay laugh <laughs> <laughs> on the punchline of the joke, yeah. which is a sad punchline. <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> and I feel like you you are choosing to do that joke, not because it's the joke in your act that gets the biggest laugh. Mm -hmm. It's the joke that makes a very strong point of who I am <laughs> and what's, what creates this recipe of a person. <laughs> But it's yeah, I love that joke. It, I, Mufasa Rigatoni is the dumbest thing I could possibly put together to make a point about myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what what's so great about it is that it is, you know, you open that bit with this uh, absurd bravado. You segue into a kind of very very difficult social historical truth, yeah. and then you go right into the dumbest silly name <laughs> joke. Like, what can you do about it at the end of the day? <laughs> Is that a bravado that you come on stage with a sincere or a pose? Um, there is, there's obviously sincerity about it. It's just not, uh, the, it's not the consistent aspect of my personality throughout the day. <laughs> like, it definitely, it takes a whole day to build up to that bravado. <laughs> uh, a lot of it is like, oh, you can definitely do it. You, you're, you're fine. You have the confidence in you, and then eventually, it's. I've, it's usually fake until you make it kind of thing. <laughs> was that always the case in your stand-up comedy career? Um, that was sort of what kept me on stage, is uh, a strong uh, sense of confidence in what I'm saying. Uh, because if it wavers a little, the jokes don't hold up at all. <laughs> uh, because I, I don't intentionally mean to say such brazen things, but I, I do. <laughs> and if you say it uh, with, uh, with a little less confidence, it doesn't, it doesn't hold true at all. Is it, a lot of people are like, well, that would have been funny if, you know, you cared about what you were saying. <laughs> so do you feel like this is, you know, this kind of boldness is just the way that you have to express yourself for it to work? Is there another Solomon Giorgio on an alternate planet <laughs> who uh, just writes cute jokes? Because there are some, uh, you know, there's some uh, there's some material here that's cute jokes. Of course. Um, it's I don't it's I don't know. I like it's. It's tough to explain. It's a, I, I think I work in a little bit of nuance uh, here and there. And I think since this is my first album, it's mostly just like, like me. <laughs> I'm becoming a little more whimsical through time uh, and trusting that. But it's not how I was raised. So it's kind of like, okay, you can be whimsy. Whimsy's allowed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I had a very rough childhood. Uh, my, my imaginary friend was shot. <laughs> it was... <laughs> That is very whimsical. <laughs> it's quite beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
Tell me a little bit about the circumstances of your childhood. Your family is Ethiopian, mm-hmm. right? but you weren't born in Ethiopia? Oh, yeah. I was born in Sudan, uh, which is a country right above. Uh, we, we, were there, we were in refuge there till I was about four years old. No, three. Uh, about to turn four. And then we came to the States uh, in 85 uh, because Ethiopia was the uh, country of the, uh, d- of the decade. <laughs> Everyone wants to help. And so we immediately uh, got um, permanent resident status when we got here. And we first moved to St. Louis, Missouri. And that was the beginning of our American adventure. What did your parents tell you about uh, your life in the Sudan and their life in Ethiopia? Like, what was important continuity-wise for them? Um <clears throat> They like for them Ethiopia is this magic golden uh, country uh, that went through a very tough time, <laughs> uh, but they they still in their head have the good old days, uh, and they're yeah they're definitely nationalists, but <laughs> but it's not as scary when you're not in the country anymore. <laughs> but yeah, Ethiopia for them was yeah land of milk and honey. Uh, Sudan for them they just talk about it like a temporary spot, even though they were living there for quite a while. They just never felt there was no permanency. There was you're a refugee, uh, you're, and you're in a, especially you're a refugee in a country that doesn't really consider you, uh, that doesn't really want you there. <laughs> um, so I think when we came here, uh, they definitely, it's like uh, Ethiopia was built up to be like this mythical, magical, uh, wondrous place that we that we had to run away from, and one day we'll get to go back to. <laughs> Have you spent time there, or did you spend time there as a kid? Um, brief, not very long, and it's been so long that I, the memories aren't the best. But uh, I definitely, I think I, as an adult, I should go back. But I'm very lazy, and <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a lot of work is involved. I mean, it it also like when it is a mythical place in mm-hmm. your mind and in your family's history. You know, unless you fully buy into that, unless mm-hmm. you perfectly buy into that, which from what I know about your personality, I'm disinclined mm. to believe you would. No, I did not fall for it at all. <laughs> yeah. So, like, in, unless you're 100% on board with that, you – it's tough to go somewhere and be, fo- be forced by mm-hmm. going there to compare your lived experience with this story that has been told to you. Yeah. Uh, and also the – like the way my parents are too, they're very like strict. And I was like, well, and I actually had the most liberal African par- Ethiopian parents, and they were still very harsh. So I was like, look, if you guys are the coolest ones, I don't want to even figure out what the rest of them are like. <laughs> you ended up on a kind of cross country journey with your mm-hmm. family. Yes, uh, first St. Louis uh, for a couple of years, and uh, my mom definitely did not care for snow, uh, and then. We moved to Fresno, California. Did your was your dad on board for snow? Um, my dad was. My dad's a bit of a drifter, so he's content wherever you throw him, um, as long as he gets to do whatever he wants. <laughs> uh, so uh, Fresno was like ideally that was it was great weather wise, uh, but city wise it was awful. <laughs> um, I do not recommend Fresno to anyone, um, not even my worst enemy. I wouldn't. <laughs> Uh, and then that was seven years there, and then uh, Seattle, uh, 
we moved there. Uh, my dad was an Alaskan fisherman. He got injured, and then he settled in Seattle, and we moved up uh, to meet up with him in the mid-'90s. Uh, and then I was like, this is the coolest city ever, and please don't ever make me go back to Fresno. I uh, had some friends out of school who were threatening to become Alaskan fishermen. That's a job that pays reasonably well and is yeah. completely full of insane hardship. It is it's you work 14-hour days on a cold boat and my dad like was gutting fish. Uh that was his job the whole day and I I I don't I'm trying to like I don't even know if if he his injury was an accident. I think he was just like get me off this boat. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's a terrible situation to be in, um, and it's an endurance test. Uh, but you do get a good chunk of money, uh, but I don't know if it's worth it. I mean, you must have not seen him for fair periods of time as well. Oh well, my parents were at the time were not uh, together. Uh, they reconciled afterwards. My dad is a uh, is a cheating man, <laughs> and uh, they've gotten back together a couple of times because of that. Uh, so he was definitely out of the house at the moment. So. And I wasn't, like, the happiest. Like, I was like, yeah, you should cheat on my mom. Peace out, dog. <laughs> and but then, yeah, after after a bit, you'd see him, see him again. You forgive him, and then you're living in Fresno. You're, then he's like, well, I'll get you out of Fresno. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't care what you did. Get me out of here. <laughs> did you feel at home in any of these places that you lived? Um, Seattle was definitely an immediate, uh, like, that felt like home the most uh, because it's a because it's a relaxed city, and I just needed that. Uh, it's a relaxed city. It's also uh, it's very academic focused. Everyone is like really uh, really about educating themselves and trying to like. And that's and that, I was a really nerdy kid, and I just wanted to absorb knowledge. And it was a city that was like yeah, the most literate city in the country. So I was like, yeah, this is what I want. I want people who forced me to read and expand my mind and so it was just like yeah, I, I felt great to, as, a, as a little dorky kid that just didn't know where he fit in and I was like oh this whole city is filled with dorks isn't that <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the I think that's the town slogan Seattle yeah. City of Dorks yes <laughs> the Emerald City of Dorks <laughs> <laughs> it's just a big picture of Bill Gates with open arms mm-hmm. yeah I, it's it's really it's it's kind of nice to be in like it's a whole. It's a city that's a giant coffee shop of people reading Bukowski. <laughs> it's 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 nice. Uh, pretentious, but very nice. Were you a good student? Um, yes, uh, I tried to be. Um, I faltered here and there, uh, mostly out of just being a closeted gay teen and not knowing what to do with myself. Uh, but uh, like I was a good student, but eventually I realized that education isn't like my. Like I, I didn't. Well, there was no degree that would have made me happy, as, as since I wanted to be a performer as well. So I was like, okay, I'm good at school, but that's not what I want to be good at. How did you realize that? Um, well, I the first time I figured that out was when I ran away when I was 17, <laughs> and I went to a lot. I moved. I ran away to LA. Uh, and stayed at uh, the Man's Chinese. Right, there's a hostel around the corner from the Chinese theater, and I was there for a month. And then I stayed in shelters for a few months and tried to be f- that the famous. I'm air quoting right now because I was a 17 year old and he didn't comprehend how fame works. <laughs> like, oh, you have to have a skill set to. Uh, so that was that was sort of like I was like I like I was still going to school at the time uh, when I was there when I was here. 
I'm trying to remember where I'm at now. <laughs> I'm yeah. in Los Angeles right now. And that sort of was like, like I learned that I have to have a better idea of what I want to do as a performer, but I definitely knew that that was my preference. Like knowing that I'm angling myself towards the arts more than academia was, was like, that was always made me happier regardless of how uh, monetarily uh, dangerous it is. <laughs> how and why did you run away when you were 17? Um, well, I was a fancy little transient. Uh, I was working at Subway at the time. and Pretty fancy so far. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I decided that I was going to run away. And so I put together a three-part plan, uh, which is save up as much money as possible. And then I also managed to take money out from my mother's account <laughs> as well. Uh, and, uh, and then one night around midnight, I called a cab. Uh, I first of all, I packed up all of my things in like six pieces of luggage. I called a cab, like I quietly moved, like I don't know about two hundred fifty pounds worth of luggage. Down I'm imagining this. you calling <laughs> porters for teens. <laughs> and the, but the the cab company called back, and my dad awoke and answered the phone. So I ended up having to, um, like, I waited for him to go back to sleep, and then I <laughs> took all of the luggage. Uh, and and slowly rolled it uh, about two blocks <laughs> to the nearest Seven Eleven, and then I called the cab again, <laughs> and then I uh, I took the cab to a Greyhound station, and no one questioned me. They just let me get on like a one a.m. Uh, Greyhound bus to L.A. <laughs> with a lot of luggage. Uh, I actually had to pay extra because it was overweight. I could I had to bring all of my books with me. I got there twenty four hours later. Uh, I was lucky enough because somebody from Ashland, Oregon, uh, sat next to me. That was very polite, so I didn't have to deal with any any of the insanity of the Greyhound. <laughs> somebody was like two hours later, like sat next to me. I was like, "Oh, good, you're you're a normal person. I'm not afraid anymore." <laughs> yeah, shout out to Ashland, Oregon, home Thank of the you. Oregon Shakespeare Festival. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then I I I got to L.A. Um, and I didn't. I there's there was all these uh, posters for hostels in the Greyhound station, and there was one that offered a free cab. And it was uh, in the heart of Inglewood, and I didn't, I've, and I, and I, uh, I've heard rumors of Inglewood up until that time, but I didn't realize that until I got there, and I was like, I probably shouldn't stay in Inglewood by myself. <laughs> I eventually landed in the uh, the hostel itself uh, that I stayed at, uh, which is also not too far away from the hotel that uh, Janis Joplin was died in. <laughs> it's a fun little tour I can give you of that part of Hollywood. <laughs> um, Did other people in your life when you were seventeen know that you were gay? No. Um, well, my brothers did, but they, like, in the sense that they... They had intuited it rather than... Well, they you... also found my pornography as well. I did have a ton of it in between my mattress, and it's really... You just put two and two together. <laughs> it was a very... <laughs> so, yeah, they, they figured it out fairly quickly, um, and they were... Definitely unconcerned by it, but it was definitely not like a thing we talked about. Uh, and so it's and and I'm sure they would have been very cool with it if I ever talked to them directly. But it was just like, eh, I can't do it. It's gotta gotta do it this way where I where I take the bi- biggest risk of my life. And I did, and it actually that made any other risk that I took in the future not as terrifying because it's like, okay, this is I can do things if I just plot it out. Take my time, and the worst thing that can happen is that I move back to Seattle. So <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> if my backup plan is moving back to Seattle, I'm not going to ever be in a bad situation. 
Seattle's nice. Yeah, it's a nice city. So I have a lot of friends that'll happily let me just sleep on their couches until I figure it out. So I'm like, all right, sure. That's okay. <laughs> My conversation with Solomon Georgia continues after a quick break. Still on the docket, Solomon tells me about the time he came out to his mom as a stand-up comedian. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. So it's the holidays. It's the end of the year. And, and I want to tell you why it's so important to support your local public radio station. One of the things that I hear a lot from listeners is that listening to public radio, listening to something calm and clear and intelligent and important is a way that they take care of themselves. It's a moment out from the bonkers world that's out there everywhere else, the relentless stream of social media and the madness of city streets and so on and so forth. It's a chance to take a breath and pause and think about the world. If public radio is your me time, then support a show that brings you relaxing moments of escape. You can donate to your station at donate.npr.org slash bullseye. That's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And when you give, tell the world and us why you did it with the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple, royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Solomon Giorgio in just a second. But Bullseye isn't the only culture show for maximum fun. We've got a really cool brand new show called Switchblade Sisters. It's hosted by the totally brilliant film critic April Wolf. And April basically, April grew up, she was raised by her grandparents in their bar. And from early childhood, they showed her terrifying horror films. Now, you would think that that would warp her completely. And in fact, actually, maybe it has because she still loves genre movies. And on her show, Switchblade Sisters, she talks every week to a female filmmaker about their favorite genre films. I'm talking about movies like The Invitation, uh, Near Dark, Bone Tomahawk. I'm led to believe people are really into Bone Tomahawk. And most recently, Pan's Labyrinth. In fact, the show just got a shout out from Guillermo del Toro on Twitter. So we're pretty stoked about that. Just search for Switchblade Sisters in your favorite podcast app. I think you're going to really love this show. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Solomon Giorgio. He's a stand-up comedian. His debut album is called Homo Negro Superior. It's out now. Uh, I want to play a clip mm -hmm. from your album. My guest is Solomon Giorgio. And this is you talking about coming out to your parents, which was what, when you were 18? Mm -hmm. I, well, my dad was the one that got the most upset. I don't know if it was because I said I was gay or the fact that I sang the entirety of Papa Don't Preach immediately <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> 
It's a much longer song than you think it is. <laughs> but I didn't stop. <laughs> but he got mad. He got really upset. And he actually, he, oddly enough, he said the most cliche thing you can say in that situation. My father literally said to me, his eldest son, that God hates gay people. And I was like, tight. <laughs> I'm an atheist, you guys. <laughs> Tell me God hates gay people is like telling me a ghost hates my shirt. Like, I... That's funny. It's yeah. also a little terrifying, <laughs> Solomon. Oh, I guess. It's, I, it doesn't bother me. It's because it's, it's also, this, it's been... Wow, man, I just realized that I, I've been... My homosexuality is now 17 years old. <laughs> I've been openly gay for 17 years now, so it's... It's pretty not... soon you'll be able to buy gay cigarettes. Oh yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's now like like it's definitely enough time has passed where it doesn't is no longer as scary as it was, and uh, my relationship with my father is no longer as damaged as it was. Oh, I'm, but I'm still obviously gonna keep making fun of that till forever because <laughs> uh, that's a <laughs> thing to do to your child. <laughs> but yeah, it's it was scary at the time. I was definitely mortified. I definitely was constantly, like, uh, if I was making the right decision. But then there was also a really big fire in me. And I think that week alone, I told every human being within hearing range that I was gay. I did not care. I was just like, I'm on a roll. I told, <laughs> I did the hardest one. I'm going to tell anyone who's passing by, which a lot of people were like, yeah, I don't, I, we've never met. I don't know why you need to tell me this. <laughs> but it felt, the the feeling of coming out always that joy just kind of swept over whatever negativity that I dealt with and Seattle is also a really great city to come out in because it's a city of people that are looking for something to be progressive towards <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking for progressive progressivity oh, yeah. opportunities oh yeah they were thrilled to already have a black person in their life and then when they found out it was gay they were like what <laughs> Jen <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it was it like that that uh did counterbalance my parents <laughs> very well. <laughs> like they used all their town all their <laughs> like they used all their tiles and yachts. Like, yes. <laughs> I mean in Scrabble. <sighs> yeah. Did you have to come out to your parents as a stand up comic? Um in, uh, yeah. I don't think I don't I'm pretty sure they're not fully accepting of it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. We should explain. You're in your mid thirties. <laughs> you just have a. You just put. A, you just got a half hour special. Mm. I think now is the time for them to come to terms with it. Oh, they're definitely uh, better at it now. Uh, but it's. It was for sure like a solid eight years of comedy of them. Like maybe a real job is a good idea. And it's mostly my mother uh, that I speak to in that regards. I don't think my dad actually generally knows what I do as a person. <laughs> like, I'm sure he has a job out there somewhere. Um, but my mom just like she never fully comprehended what it is or how it worked, even though she loves comedy and she knows how how she knows like most of her favorite stuff is comedy. So it's it was weird to be like, hey, you know your favorite thing? I'm gonna do that. She's like, why? 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 You're not any good at it. <laughs> um, but yeah, now she she's used to seeing me on TV. But also she's like, oh, you're, are you always gonna say you're gay every time? I'm like, yeah, 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 I am. I am. You're gonna have to deal with that. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, alternatively, you could put it on some sort of T-shirt or something oh, yeah. so that it reads immediately. Yeah, I'm going to definitely find another way to bring it up. Uh, I probably should put it on a T-shirt. She can't read. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mention he was gay this time. Oh, he did. <laughs> You're like, honey, I enjoyed your appearance on NPR. You talked a little bit too much about how you were gay. Also, you mentioned how I can't read. <laughs> that seems like more than you needed to uh, say. Well, uh, well, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think that, um, you know, something that a lot of artists who are first-generation Americans have to deal mm-hmm. with is that they have families who have gone through incredible instability um, in order to give them a chance at stability. And it can be very scary, right, for for uh, that person who they, like, I, you can have the stability that we couldn't have yeah. to say, I choose instability. <laughs> well, the great thing about my family is that it's still unstable. <laughs> no one's doing financially well. Um, uh, so it's, and that's, yeah, I think that's, I th- I'm used to the world of chaos. Uh, so that's like, even though my parents were working to maintain stability, they did a terrible job at maintaining stability. So it didn't seem like anything was like, ev- like we were always on the verge of falling apart. So I'm like, hey, it's totally fine if I live the, my life away forever. Yeah, I think there are people who uh, grow up, I think there are many people who grow up poor mm-hmm. and see their future as, as acquiring wealth so that they, so that they don't have to live that way. Yeah. But there is something to that feeling, well, I've – and this is something that I can relate to a little bit. Like, I've been poor. Yeah. Those, I mean, I can't recommend it, but I know I could do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably at the m- most financially stable I've ever been. Um, but, like, it's one of those things where it's like, it's, I, if I lose it all, what, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'll keep being – in the same situation I've always been my whole life, I'll be fine. Uh, and so I think I do find I can always I've always managed to find a a uh, calm in chaos. Uh, so even though I have to do make ends meet in weird ways, I can I can do it. It's fine. It's not the worst. That's things like it's treating money like a cure for anything is uh, that's a dangerous way to live. It's like, yes, I'm happy to have the funds right now to uh, live the life I want to live, but it's not my source of happiness. Uh, like doing doing the thing that I've always wanted to do, regardless of what my finances are, that's my source of happiness. Let's hear some more comedy from my guest, Solomon Giorgio, and his new album, uh, Homo Negro Superior. <laughs> this is uh, Solomon talking about his response to folks who... Uh, use their religion to justify prejudice against LGBTQ people. What I'm essentially being told is that God hates me, yet he made me look like a perfect angel. (laughs) Take a minute, look up and down, find a flaw. There isn't one. I've checked for 35 years. (laughs) Do you see these legs? Do you see them? You have to fire them because they don't. Quit, okay? <laughs> it's a stupid joke, Solomon. <laughs> I know. So you have to fire them because they don't quit. Is how you end that. But the, um, <laughs> but the thing that's really the thing that's really magical about that to me 
And it's something that I always enjoy when you go up on stage is, you know, it's obvious from the moment you go on stage and especially because you're often obliged to kind of describe yourself immediately mm. so folks know how to parse the situation <laughs> you know you are here you are and you're you know you're gay you're black you're an immigrant you have like this whole set of stuff right and so you a big part of your act is wouldn't it be great and funny if a guy who was in all those weird and difficult cultural positions came out and acted like all of that was the greatest, most convenient, <laughs> wonderful thing in the world, and he was just the best. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, that's, a, it's what I try to do. I... <laughs> Let the record show that you've, you've really struck an easy and elegant pose here in the studio. <laughs> Look, it took a long time uh, to make this comfortable and easy to look at, uh, <laughs> and it's uh, yeah. I I'm I'm not gonna kid myself. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not the worst thing to look at. <laughs> <laughs> you are, as you, as you say, as you say in your act, a straight ten gay six. <laughs> um, yeah, they're the gay people are very attractive uh, in general. So, um, but yeah, it's I. Also, that that uh, that is actually somebody. What somebody said to me on the bus. Uh, <laughs> that punchline to that joke was was a man when I was sitting down just yelled it across to me. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and I have kept it since. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's uh it's kind of I I don't know why I I use beauty as a deflector, <laughs> but it's it's not I I I it's just fun to. It's like, how dare you? <laughs> Do you know what I look like? I don't deserve this treatment. <laughs> uh, it's just a fun, it's just a fun uh, character pull. <laughs> just to, like, it's a, it's a nice little deflector. Like, because it's like, yeah, you can, you can think I'm terrible for these things, but why would I look like this <laughs> if I, if those things were bad? <laughs> Well, Solomon, thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to well, get to know you me. get to know you better. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Solomon Giorgio, folks. Homo Negro Superior, his debut album, is available everywhere you can find comedy records. Give it a listen. It's a home run. Seriously, Solomon is just one of the funniest dudes I know. He's got dates coming up in Minneapolis, Bellevue, Washington, Corvallis, Oregon, San Francisco, Boise, Austin, and Sunnyvale, among other places. You can find more information at thesolomongiorgio.com. Every week on Bullseye, we'd like to leave you with a little culture recommendation. For me, it's the outshot. In 2010, he walked into a police precinct and he confessed. It was 17 years since he'd committed the crime. He was standing under the scaffolding on Park Avenue, 114th Street. I was riding my bike. I said, well, oh, give me the money, man. The guy grabbed the gun, you know, and I pulled the gun back. That's when I fight. He knew it was serious. It had been weighing on him. But he didn't know that the man he'd shot had died. His lawyer said he was in N.A., Narcotics Anonymous. He was trying to get off PCP, trying to make amends, to get right with God. Police said that the first time he confessed, he was so high, they couldn't make sense of what he said. They kicked him out. 
It was his third time in that finally convinced them he was a murderer. What led you to walk into that police station? I think I was just at a point, you know, where it was like enough is enough. But nobody else knew about it? You could have just kept quiet and dealt with it on your own. The dealing with it was killing me. That's the epilogue to GDEP's story, but I actually want to talk about a record. In 2001, the ghetto dependent, as he called himself, put out a record on Bad Boy. It's called Child of the Ghetto. It's a good album. On it is one of the best and plainest expressions of the fear and sickness of being broke. It's a song called Every Day. Hey, yo, I walk down the block with my stomach in knots. Spend time hustling, running for cops. Broke as a joke, no wins at all. Can't play ball and my Tim's are small. Can't buy trees with government cheese. I'd rather be where it's breeze with bubbling keys. My mom's got two jobs, one in the knees. I'm writing letters to the governor, please call off the deeds. My baby mother with another brother with cash. They drive by, roll down the window and laugh. I solve all my problems with Indo and hash. Bought my daughter a Nintendo, now she calling him dad. My landlord's a jerk, the water don't work. My little sister 12, and she bought her own skirt. Rather do Kirk than do her homework. Talk to boys and she'll jump for joy. Twist it. Opportunity not what I missed it. Out in the park getting lifted. So now I'm sitting here out of luck without a buck. And it don't make a difference. So yeah. By the time G Depp cut that first record, he was in his late 20s. He had three children. And it was 10 years that he'd been living with this secret, the secret that he had shot someone. His wife said that sometimes she would go to work and then come home and take care of the kids and go to bed alone. And then at 2 or 3 in the morning, she'd get a call. Hey, come get your husband. She'd bring him home. He'd be coming off of a PCP high, and in the dark, she'd try and get him to eat and wash. On every day, there isn't any grand eloquence. It's just a list of the pains and indignities of living on the edge of desperation. I had a little money, but it came and it went. Now I see we pay the rent or stay in the tent. And it don't make sense how this shit is intense. You know you got up in your pocket is lent. You get the hint. I had a cigarette for breakfast just for beginners. Cry for my lunch and sleep for dinner. Try to go to church. Priest called me a sinner. They called me everything except for a winner. I'm walking in the rain wishing things would change. It ain't a game, man. I pawned all the rings and chains. Emotionally scarred from losing my you can hear G. Depp's burden on the record. How much did it eat at you? It seemed like it just wasn't fair for me to, you know, be happy. You know what I'm saying? I used to curb my happiness. You know, like just, now wait a minute, I'm, I'm smiling too much, I'm laughing too much. You can hear that he didn't see a way out from his crime or from the hood. That even when he signed with Bad Boy, even when Diddy handed him a check for $350,000, he still felt trapped. Hey, yo, I'm living in the ghetto and I'm trying to survive. At the same time, I'm rolling by in the five. Can't find a drive for a nine to five. It's like I only get by when I'm feeling the high. And I ain't got no smoke. The elevator broke. I'm at the end of my rope trying to find a way to cope. I'm sipping on gin thinking how I could win. I don't know where to begin, but this is where it could end. Hey, yo. you hear me? On paid in full, 
Rakim was thinking of a master plan. He figured out the come up. But when G-Dep looked into the future, he only saw hopelessness. He only saw one end to the story. And you wonder if the day he walked into that police station, the end of that story may be changed. He led a gangster life and glorified it in rhyme. And he'd pay a great debt for committing a crime, betrayed by the last person anyone would have suspected, himself. I was the only way I could have been absolved, you know, a person who sacrificed. It's 2017 now, seven years after that confession. G-Dep is still in prison. He has half a sentence to go. His children are growing up without him. Art won't wash clean his sin. He killed a man. There's no reversing that. But it seems that there may be some solace in creating. In prison, G-Dep is still rapping. The only thing I really want to talk about is walking out, only because everybody else talk about it. I tell them realistically, I doubt it. Fifteen years is a long time, but I got to be strong. I did a crime. I said the system's insanity. I hope God forgives my calamity. I feel for the victim's family. That's my outshot. You hear me? Because if you don't, I come up close and say it clearly. I got to know, I got to go. I strive for my pay each and every way. But this type of shit happens every day. Now would you check me? If I was you and you with me, would you respect me? I got to know, I got to go. I strive for my pay each and every way. But this type of shit happens every day. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. This week, as is often the case, they were shooting a big Hollywood TV show in the park, and they saw fit to shine giant purple light beams into our office, which was profoundly disorienting. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer at MaxFun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. You'll actually hear the Go Team on this show in a few weeks. Uh, They've got a brand new record on the way. Lap Comfort this week is provided by my dog, Coco. Say hi, Coco. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Go to MaximumFun.org or hit up our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube, and you can listen and share them there. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all of our interviews there as well, plus cool stuff we found on the Internet, like a video of a guy who plays the glass harmonica, which is actually a very beautiful-sounding instrument that was invented by Benjamin Franklin. The guy who plays the glass harmonica says, you have to get your fingers wet enough that they get good and wrinkly. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.